Let me ask you, um, how many of you have been a Christian and you know, you, you're saved, you've been walking with Jesus for over, let's say, 10 years? How many of you have been? Okay. All right, that's a lot of us. That's not everybody in the room. Some of you have maybe gotten saved recently or more recently than that. Some of you may be here and you would say, you know, Sean, I'm not even sure yet if I want to follow Jesus. And you're still working through all that. And we want you to know, first off, we are so glad that you are here. If you're here and you have not yet come to the place of trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord, man, we are so glad you're here. And we hope that this morning you've heard about how awesome he is. You're going to hear that some more as we talk about it out of the Bible today. Um, But as those of us who have followed Jesus, I've had the privilege of actually walking with Jesus for over 30 years now, which is crazy because I'm only 27. Um, So, uh, but over the last 30 years, I, I have to admit, there are moments when I sit back and think, man, I just wonder why this thing hasn't happened yet. You know, why is life still so hard? Why why has God not fixed this problem yet? Why, why has he not worked through this thing yet? And as we're looking at, at Abraham and Sarah's life, what we're going to do today is actually fast forward to their end of their lives. In fact, um, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 23. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you. It's the, the black book next to the red ones. Uh, you, Genesis is in the very beginning, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, it's on page 16 in my Bible, which doesn't help you in the least because uh, every Bible is different. But as you're flipping over there, we're going to look today at the end of Sarah's life, and we're going to go look at the end of Abraham's life, although we're going to kind of come back to one more story out of Abraham's life uh, when we go back this next week, okay? But we're, we're wrapping this up because here's what I, I want us to see as we look at their life and, and the way that things ended for them. For both Abraham and Sarah, God had given them some absolutely incredible promises. And in their lifetimes, they saw God do some incredible things. However, all they had when they died was a piece of the promise that God had given them. And as we see the way that God's worked since Abraham died, here's my my hope and my challenge for us. As we look at our lives and say, but why has this thing not happened yet? Why am I still not at this point? You know, you and I in this life, we may never get there. We may end up dying with only a piece of the promise. But what I want you to see is that God will be faithful to keep his word. Now, we're going to see that as we go through some stories. There's going to be a little bit more historic information, a little bit of background about what's going on. Uh, But as we get towards the end, you'll start seeing how this applies to us a little bit more, okay? So as we're picking up, we've been seeing, like I said, over the last couple of months, we've been walking through Abraham and Sarah's life. We've seen God call them to himself, make this promise that he's going to make Abraham the father of many nations. He's going to multiply his offspring so they'll be as innumerable as the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore, all of these different things right? He's made these amazing promises. But now as we come, we've seen little bits and pieces of the fulfillment of that. We've seen them have Isaac, this child that they've been wanting. Even Abraham had already had Ishmael. We, we've seen all of these things. And yet, as we come to the end of their stories, we're not coming to the end of the Genesis, by the way. We're going to keep going through the rest of Genesis. But as we come to the end of their stories, we're seeing that they still just have little pieces of these promises fulfilled. 
there's kind of two main promises. We'll look at some others, but there's two main promises that God had made to Abraham. One, that he would have all of the land of Canaan for his descendants, that they would occupy this entire land from uh, the river of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River, the Mediterranean Sea, all of this land that God had promised to, to Abraham. Then he also had promised that he'd make him the father of many nations and have this innumerable offspring. So, so let's see kind of the status of those promises when Abraham and Sarah die. First, uh, picking up in chapter 23, we come to a somber scene. Here in 23, verse 1, it said, Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, there's several interesting things that are significant about this passage if you like Bible trivia. One, according to one commentator, Sarah's age is the only woman's age given in the entire scripture. Interesting. She was such a foundational person that God actually recorded her age at her death, which he never did anywhere else in the Bible, which is kind of fascinating. The other interesting thing that you see here is this is the first mention of weeping and tears in the Bible. As Abraham mourns over his wife of maybe a hundred years, right? We don't know how old they were when they got married. We know that they've been, they were at least married for some time before God called them at 75. She was 65. She's now a hundred and how old does it say? 127. Abraham's 137. So they've been together at least 50 some odd years or more, right? Let's see. Somebody do the math. 62 years. Okay, at least 62, and we know they'd been married for a long time before that. So this is an entire lifetime together. Now, in those days, people lived to be older than they do now. We don't exactly know why, but that's how it worked. So here we've got them living a whole lifetime together. Isn't it, isn't it beautiful, by the way? The Bible often seems kind of sterile when we read it. You know, it's just this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But this is a husband who's lived a lot of years with a woman by his side. And you see the great patriarch, Abraham, go into the, her tent and mourn there at her side. Now, Abraham goes and he weeps for her. It's this beautiful moment of, of the love and the, the humanity of these people, right? Abraham was this great spiritual giant who loved his wife and was brokenhearted when she died. Now, as significant and powerful as this moment is, it's marked by a painful reality. Abraham doesn't own any land on which to bury his wife. It's been years since God made the promise that they would come in and he would give this land to Abraham and his descendants. And Abraham doesn't own a single piece of it. If you go back and read the accounts, you've seen he stayed for a while here and he stayed for a while here and he stayed for a while here. He lived in tents the entire time, but he had just kind of passed through all this. He'd left his ancestral homeland where he would have had land and his whole family would have been buried. And now he's out kind of in the middle of nowhere. He's away from anybody that he knew as family. He's isolated here. He's had his son and maybe some of his son's families around, but, but this is it. Doesn't even own a piece of property to bury his wife. Now pick up in verse three. All this is about to change. You see, then Abraham got up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites, I am an alien residing among you. By the way, for those who aren't familiar, alien does not mean extraterrestrial, okay? Alien actually just means outsider. He's not, hey, he was an alien. No wonder the Nephilim, no, 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 no. Okay, just nip it in the bud. 
He was an outsider. He said, guys, I'm not from here. And he said, as as from not being here, he says in verse three, uh, verse four, excuse me, I'm an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, listen to us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place for burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hittites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you're willing for me to bury, to, uh, bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It's at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. So he says, hey, guys, listen, I don't even have anywhere to bury my dead. I, I don't even own a funeral plot. So can I, can I have some? Now, the Hittites respond, you are, you're a prince of God or you're a mighty one among us. You're, you know, we, you take whatever you want. Now, here's a, a question that commentators debate about this whole passage. There's a question, you'll see some back and forth that goes on where they say, you know, we'll give you whatever. And Abraham says, no, let me buy it. And, and so then uh, they, they go back and forth. And, and some have said that the Hittites just are so in love with Abraham that they're just trying to be generous to him. But, but it's kind of like the king of Sodom and Abraham doesn't want to take anything from them without, you know, buying it. And so they go back and forth. Honestly, to me, this reads like good old fashioned haggling. Okay, when you actually read the passage, it's not so much, they they sit there and say, you know, hey, we'll give you whatever you want. And so he says, all right, well, I want the cave of Machpelah that's at the end of Ephron's field. Ephron comes back and says, hey, my Lord, I tell you what, don't take just the cave, take the whole field as well, which means I'm not interested in selling you the cave. I want to sell you the whole piece of property. I'm not interested in that. And so Abraham comes back and says, okay, that's fine. Tell me, I'll give you the full price for the field. By the way, the only other time that that full price is used is when David is buying the threshing floor that eventually will be the foundation for the temple. Fascinating. Um, But as he says, he says, okay, so here, I'll give you full price. And this is where I love, this is, I think, the thing that really tells me that they're haggling. Ephron replies and says, oh, my Lord, what is 400 shekels of silver between the two of us? And why did he throw that out there? Because it's the polite way to say, I want 400 shekels of silver for this piece of property, okay? So what you're seeing is this very polite exchange where there's a business transaction taking place. So Abraham weighs out the 400 shekels of silver. They didn't use coins at that point. He did it by weight. So, So at this point, he weighs out the shekels of silver and they agree on it. And so he purchases this property. By the way, some have said that that's an exorbitant price, and we have no idea how much a piece of property was worth in that day. We don't know how big the field was. We don't know how honest it was. How, we don't know. So that's just conjecture. But what we do know is he paid 400 shekels of silver to buy one field with one cave in it to bury his dead. Now, now God made this promise to him, Right? There is no other record anywhere in Scripture of Abraham buying any additional land. In verses 14 and 15, we see that they agree on the price. Then verse 20, it said, The field with its cave passed from the Hittites to Abraham as burial property. There is no other record beyond this of of him buying any additional land anywhere in Canaan. But God promised him that his descendants would have from the Euphrates River all the way to the River of Egypt, depending on how you translate that. That may mean all the way to the Nile or just so there was a, kind of a brook that was the dividing line. Uh, it could mean that. Anyway, it's this massive tract of land and all he has is this tiny little piece. When Abraham dies, he's buried in that same cave. All they own is a piece of the promise that God made. 
Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Leah would all be buried in that same piece of land. Now, 400 years later, we know that God would bring Abraham's descendants back to the land that he'd promised. That time, the nation would drive out the inhabitants and they would take possession of the land and there would be different times where they'd have more of it or less of it. Under Solomon, it gets expanded about as far as it ever did. But we see God's faithfulness in keeping the promise he made to Abraham by bringing his descendants back to the land. And as he brings his descendants back to the land, he gives them what he'd promised. But Abraham didn't get to see that. All he saw was a piece of the promise. So, there's only this one field, a place to bury his wife. Out of the, the land promise, that's it. We said there's another promise that God makes to Abraham, though, and that is that his descendants are going to be as innumerable as the stars. That doesn't mean he's going to have as many descendants as he, there are stars. It's just, it'd be ridiculous to try to count them, just like trying, it'd be ridiculous to try to count the stars, okay? So God had made that promise to Abraham over and over again, but uh, in that, he also said that his descendants would bless the entire world. Now, Abraham, as he's going through, he doesn't get to see all that. He'd only saw a piece of this promise about his descendants. Abraham lived another 38 years after Sarah died. Chapter 24 happens in that stretch of time, but we're going to jump over that and come back to it next week. Um, By the way, chapter 24 is interesting. It's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, um, just so you know. See, there's all kinds of lovely little pedantic information that I just love to be able to study with this stuff. God does all of these things by pulling it all together. But here in 25, pick up in verses 1 and 2. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now, as you look at these different names, you don't really need to remember many of those, although uh, you may hear about the Midianites later. As you're reading through Scripture, you hear the Midianites come back up. This is one of the nations that actually gives Israel trouble later on. But what you find is that God was beginning to fulfill this promise to make Abraham the father of many nations. At Abraham's death, after he remarries Keturah, which uh, First Chronicles, I believe, refers to her as a concubine, so she's not a wife at the same status that Sarah was. Um, everything that we see in Scripture indicates that this takes place after Sarah's death. He did not marry her beforehand. But she has six more sons, so that brings his total up to eight if you count Ishmael. So now we're starting to see God fulfill this promise that he's going to be the father of many nations. Like I said, he's the father of the Midianites then, the Ishmaelites, all of these different people coming from him. It's kind of neat to see God doing that, but at the same time, that's not innumerable. God did take each of those sons and allow them to become nations of their own. So God began to let Abraham see that he really would be the father of many nations. However, as much as God blessed them, they weren't Isaac, right? The promise that God had made to bless the world through one of his descendants was coming through Isaac, not through Ishmael, not through any of the sons of Keturah, but just through Isaac. So as he gets close to the end of his life, you see this, verse five. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. And while he was still alive, he sent them eastward, away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So Abraham knew his time was getting short. He loved his sons and sought to care for them. So he blessed them with some kind of generous gift and sent them away. Because as much as he loved his sons, just like he did with Ishmael, Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the one who was going to carry on the line that God had given to Abraham. By the way, there's no indication in this that Abraham sinned by marrying Keturah. There's nothing in scripture that tells us that he was stepping out of God's plan or anything like that. It just doesn't tell us that. So as he's going through this, uh, we see him have these extra sons. We're starting to see pieces of the promise come together. And then we reach the end of his life. 
Look in verse 7. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. Man, I don't want to live that long. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented or old and full of days, depending on the translation, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite. Isn't it interesting? This great patriarch, this massive saint, and all of a sudden, he's gone. But boy, I wish that verse 8 would be able to be said of me when I die. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. That doesn't mean, by the way, that he went back to Ur, to Ur or anything like that. This is a direct promise of what God had given him earlier. He said, but you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. So this is another piece of that promise that God has made. God had promised that he would restore him or that would sustain him up through the very end of his life, and he did it. So we've seen this part of the promise fulfilled. But can you imagine? Here's one thing that we sometimes overlook. We focus on the fact that he only got pieces of the promise. But keep in mind that the pieces of the promise that God gave Abraham and Sarah were incredibly wonderful things. They had been blessed with a family. They were blessed with possessions. They were blessed with a long and seemingly healthy life in many ways. They they had a lot of good years together. So that when they died, it says that he was old and either full of days or, or possibly that means he was old and contented. He'd lived a good life. He'd had a good run. And he was satisfied with all that God had done. Boy, wouldn't that be great to be said of us? You see, in all of these things, Abraham breathed his last and he was old and contented. But in spite of all of those things, he still only had a piece of the promise. He may have lived to see his great-grandchildren. We don't really know how many were alive when Abraham died. We don't know all the details. We can put some of the pieces together, but but we don't know on some of the, the other sons and things. But at the same time, that's not an innumerable multitude of people. That's not powerful nations that have arisen yet. And that's not a descendant through whom all of the world would be blessed. Not yet. Not that we know of. Abraham died only receiving a piece of the promise about his descendants. But see, we know the rest of the story. The fulfillment of that promise wouldn't come for almost 2,000 more years when Abraham's greatest descendant would be born. While Abraham only saw a piece of the promise, God knew he would not only bless the world through Abraham's line, but also save it. Because that's what God was doing. When Jesus, as God's son, came to earth as a baby, he came through Abraham's family. So God didn't just bless the world through Abraham's descendants, he saved it. And that's where this verse comes from that's so incredibly familiar to us that we lose track of it sometimes. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Abraham didn't fully understand what it meant that all of the nations would be blessed through one of his descendants. But that descendant is Jesus who would come and love the world so much that he would die in our place and be raised from the dead so that we could have life. 
It's not about material blessings. It's not that God came just to keep us happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's that Jesus came to rescue us from our sins, to take us from being dead in our trespasses and sins, to make us alive with himself so that now we can have a relationship with God so that whatever I possess, whatever happens, I have the down payment of the Holy Spirit in my life at this moment. I have a relationship with God based off of all that he has done Abraham didn't see that before he died. Sure, he lived a good life and he saw a lot of good things, but he only enjoyed a piece of this promise. In many ways, the same is true for us. You see, God's made some incredible promises to us, hasn't he? He's promised to save us from our sins if we trust in Jesus and declare him as the Lord of our lives. Through a relationship with him that's founded on what Jesus did on the cross, God's promised his presence and his peace and his joy and all of these things. While we have hints of that right now, we just get pieces of him in this life. Paul, Paul described it in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, he has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Now, here's what that doesn't mean, all right? Usually when you think of a down payment, you think about a little piece of everything that's coming. Usually it's a token amount, right? Maybe 5%, 10%, whatever. You know, if you're trying to do really well and Dave Ramsey, it, maybe you're putting out a 20% down payment on your house. That'd be great. But he says the Holy Spirit is our down payment. Well, does that mean that, that the Holy Spirit is somehow less God than the Father or the Son? Not at all. No, what it means is the first taste we have, the first piece of the promise that we get to experience is God himself living inside us. Now, we don't always respond as we should to him. We don't always listen like we should to him. We don't always act as we should and do all that God's called us to do. There's times where we ignore the Holy Spirit. We reject what he's trying to tell us. We won't follow his leading. All of these things, that's not on him. That's on us. But those moments where you're reading God's word and all of a sudden you're convicted or, or comforted or, or, or there's joy or, or, or there's a step of obedience that you know that you've got to take and, and you step out and you do that thing and find that as you do, God supplies the power and, and, and allows you to do that and gives you the words to be able to speak or, or the ability to control your reactions and model Jesus in a situation you didn't think you could. That's the Holy Spirit inside you working. And so that's the down payment we have of the promises that God's made. If the Holy Spirit living inside us is only a down payment, then what on earth does God have in store for us? He says a, a down payment of what I'm doing is that you would have me living in you. How much more does he have in store for us? Every person who has been saved by Jesus has the Holy Spirit living in them right now. Now, we don't experience the fullness of salvation that God's given us in this life. There's still aspects of this that we're missing. There's still pieces of the promise that we haven't yet walked into or, or lived out or experienced. But that's why the writer of Hebrews would use Abraham as an example as he said this. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For Abraham, he was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
Abraham only had this tiny piece of land out of all that God had promised him, and that was okay because he was looking beyond that to what God was going to do. He goes on in verse 16 to say, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Pause that for just a second. Leave that one up. God is not ashamed to be called their God. I don't know, but as a, as a man, would to God that that could be said of me, that I would be trusting so readily in him like Abraham, willing to be a sojourner, willing to live in tents, willing never to really be able to settle in this life because I recognize that there's a God in heaven who one day will come back for me. One day I'll be with him. One day he's going to set everything right on this earth. I only have a piece of that promise right now. I only live in the first fruits of that, but just like Abraham didn't fully receive everything God promised in this life, so too we won't fully receive all the blessings he's promised for us. There will be days when peace is hard to find. There'll be days when wisdom seems far away. Time when heartache and pain and all is very, very real. Because right now we just have pieces of the promise. But it's not always going to be like that. It said that they were looking for a city whose builder is God. You know, the Bible talks about what that city is going to be like, doesn't it? At the end, in Revelation chapter 21, he says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's the promise. The promise is, as we're walking with Jesus now, we are living out his kingdom. We are living like he's our king, like he's our Lord, he's our boss, he's in charge. And so what we're doing right now is we're living that out on a daily basis. But we're living in a world that does not yet understand this or fully recognize it or fully respond that way. So we only are living out a piece of this promise. But one day, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's going to set it all right. Now, we can discuss sometime over coffee how that's going to play out and what it's going to look like, but we know when it comes to the end of it, the end result is that God's dwelling is going to be with us again, not just in us, but with us in this incredible way that we can walk with God and talk with God and be in his presence in a way that we understand and we know it all the time. Not only that, in that moment, he's going to wipe away every tear from every I, no more pain, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. It's all going to be over. Now, Abraham lived as a sojourner, only getting pieces of that promise. We live as sojourners, only giving pieces of that promise right now. But boy, aren't those pieces beautiful? Think about a worship service where the music moved your heart and you were moved to tears over the goodness of God. 
Think about a time when you're so deeply convicted that you just, it's as though God's right here. It's like heaven was opened up and he came and just was with us. Or the time when a friend loved you so dearly, they came and they wept with you or they prayed with you, they fellowshiped with you, they were there with you. And in that moment, you felt the presence of God. It's gonna be like that a million times over forever. I think about C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. In it, his Chronicles of Narnia series has all of these allegories that point us to Christ. And he talks about this moment when they enter Aslan's country and everything became more real than it's ever been. I think about it like at the first clear fall day after the summer heat. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's, it's really visible when I'm driving into the work because we've got the mountain down there, right? I can always tell what kind of humidity we've got by how well I can see the mountain. You know, if, if it's foggy and hazy and stuff like that, must be really humid out there, a lot of stuff in the air. And then there's that cool, crisp day where it almost hurts your eyes because there's no more fog and everything's crystal clear and sharp. Or some of you guys have contacts or glasses. It's like when you finally go to, back to the eye doctor and get that new prescription and you're like, man, I could have been seeing for years. This is incredible. Almost hurts your eyes because it's so clear and so crisp. Right now, we just see through several-year-old glasses. Paul says we see in a mirror dimly, actually. In those days, a mirror was polished metal. They didn't have the glass mirrors that we have. So imagine looking at yourself in a car's hubcap, trying to get ready that way. He said, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, then we'll know fully, even as we're fully known. Abraham and Sarah walked with God. They saw God do wonderful things through their 127, 175 years. But when they died, they only had a piece of the promise. The same is going to be true of us. Life's still going to hurt. Stuff's still not going to work right. Relationships are still going to be strained. There's going to be frustrations, but we have pieces of the promise. And then there's the promise itself. Paul says it in Philippians chapter one. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We're gonna get there, guys. There's really gonna be a day where when you open your eyes, you open them in the presence of Jesus. Literally, that's such an ephemeral thing for us. It's such a a distant hope. It feels so intangible. But, But there's literally going to be a time where I close my eyes here and the next time I open them and I'm aware, I'm in the presence of God. Either that or he's gonna come back for us first and that's gonna be awesome too. But there's gonna be a literal 24 hour period that when I wake up that morning, I will see Jesus before I go to sleep that night or before the 24 hours is over, however it goes. Now, I hope that I'm full of years and contented. I can't really control the full of years part. That's up to the Lord. But what I can trust in is I can be content. 
I can develop the discipline that says, God, I'm only getting pieces of the promise right now, but I, I know you're good. I know you know what you're doing. And so I'm going to trust that you're going to finish this off. You're going to complete this. It's going to work. And I, I will rejoice and I will thank you and I will celebrate the pieces of the promise that I see now. But like Abraham, I'm just a sojourner here. I, I'm an alien and I, I don't even have a place to bury my dead. But I've got a God who's promised so much and I'm resting in him. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes today? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a minute and, and process what God's saying. Perhaps for you, you've gotten so frustrated that something hasn't happened that you've lost sight of what God is doing. So maybe what you need to do there in the quietness of this moment is Tim gets ready to kind of play some music to fill things a little bit. In the quietness of this moment, what you may need to do is say, God, I know that you've given me pieces of this promise. Would you bring those to mind so that I can hold on to them and I can celebrate them and I can rest in who you are and what you've done? God, what are the pieces of the promise that I'm forgetting about right now? What have you done this week that I've missed because it wasn't what I thought it was supposed to be? You may be here this morning, and for you, there's not much that you can think of that's been an issue because, honestly, you've not really thought about what God could do. You've never trusted him as your Savior and Lord, so you don't have any pieces of the promise to look back on yet. I hope you've heard that there's a God out there who loves you, who loves you so much that he wants a relationship with you, that he was willing to die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that you could know him. And yes, following him is not easy. It requires us to turn from trusting in ourselves to trusting in him, to place our lives under his control. And we may not see all of the things we'd want to see happen in this life. But if you're willing to surrender to him today and follow him, you'll find pieces of the promise. His goodness throughout. And you'll be looking forward to the day when you'll get to be with him forever. If you need to trust Jesus this morning, I'd love to talk with you more about that. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to step down here off the stage. And when I stop talking, if you need to talk to me about following Jesus, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you about that. If, however, you need to just do business with God where you are and kind of respond to what he's saying, you take the freedom to do that. If you want me to pray with you about something or whatever, I will be happy to. You can come down here. Just do business with God. Let him search your heart. Celebrate the pieces of the promise that you've seen already. And trust him for the ones that you haven't yet. Father, we thank you for the promise this morning. The promise that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. It's a promise from your word out of Romans chapter 10. 
Promises like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Promises that if you began a work in us through saving us and drawing us to yourself, that one day you will complete that. Promises like Romans 8 that talk about the fact that nothing in all of creation is able to separate us from your love. Promises like 1 Corinthians 13 that say that one day we will know fully and be fully known and we'll see clearly. Promises that one day every tear will be gone. Pain and sorrow and suffering will cease. God, we trust you today like Abraham trusted you with the land and with his descendants and with your promise to let him live to a good old age. We trust you and know that you're able to do all of these things. And we thank you that right now we have these pieces of the promise that we we see. Comfort and conviction from your spirit. Fellowship with other believers, abilities to understand your word Then there's all the other blessings you give us like food and clothes and warm places to sleep and all of these things. You are such a good and a gracious God. Help us to honor you this week. Help us to honor you for the pieces of the promise that we see and trust you for those that we don't. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.